Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it because this is the first episode of Season 3, and we are breaking down the Eastern Conference with the very first guest in the Hoop Talk Podcast history. So please welcome the co-host of the Hear Me Out Podcast, Brooks Warren. Yes, sir. Glad to be back. What to do, guys? What's going on, Brooks? How you doing today, man? I'm fantastic, man. It's a nice little rainy Wednesday. I got to go to work later, but I'm excited, man. Happy to be here. And on that note, we probably shouldn't waste any more time because we have 15 questions for the 15 Eastern Conference teams. So, Jalen, take it away. Yes, sir, fellas. Going into season three, you know we got to start things out right. So the best way we can do that is to kind of get a better understanding of exactly what the league is looking like going into this 2021-22 season. And, of course, like Ryan said at the top of the show, we're going to start with the Eastern Conference. And, of course, we're going to go alphabetical order, timestamps. Timestamps, if you're watching this on YouTube, yes, we're about to be on YouTube now. Timestamps, if you're watching this on YouTube, will be down. Link in the description. Otherwise, you can just follow along in alphabetical order. That's how we're going to be going through the Eastern Conference, starting with ATL, the Atlanta Hawks. So, fellas, Ryan, I'm actually going to start with you on this one, bro, bro. Who do you believe is the biggest X factor for the Hawks considering their depth? I mean, we can name off a ton of names. DeAndre Hunter, Kevin Herter, Cam Reddish, uh, uh, Okongwu. I mean, the line just keeps on going and going. They picked up Lou Williams. They've gotten so, so much better over the course of an offseason. And last year... Some would argue maybe peaked a little early, maybe beat the buzzer in terms of their kind of progression as a young team. A lot of different guys, a lot of money that's going to be due soon as well. John Collins got paid this past summer. DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish are up. Kevin Herter is somebody who's going to be looking for a bag too. Who who do you believe is the biggest X factor on this Atlanta Hawks team? I feel like I have to point to the first guy that you – mentioned in DeAndre Hunter, who only appeared in 23 regular season games last year. He ended up starting 19 of them. He averaged 15 points a game, 4.8 rebounds, 1.9 assists. He shot 48% from the field. I think that defensively, he's one of the best defensive guards, not only on the team, but in the league. And I think that he could have greatly helped this Atlanta Hawks team against teams like the Milwaukee Bucks in the playoffs, who had a lot of different offensive threats on their team, including one Giannis Antetokounmpo. So I think having a guy who is uh, six foot eight, someone who can guard the perimeter and also guard down low, I think could be very versatile for a young team like the Atlanta Hawks. Brooks, I think that when you look at this team, the big thing that everybody kind of expects moving forward is that there's going to be some kind of progression because of the amount of young guys that they have on this team. Are there any young guys on this team that stand out to you um, kind of like where Ryan went when talking about DeAndre Hunter in terms of a guy that can either burst on the scene or maybe play a much larger role than we anticipate in terms of maybe this Atlanta Hawks team being able to run it back and make last year not look like, you know, a blimp and look more like a trend. I'm, I think it's got to be the only answer, and it's, that's Cam Reddish, man. We saw what Cam Reddish was able to do. He played, what, 26 games, 
last year, yeah, he played 26 games. He got 21 starts, 11.2 points a game. You saw what he's able to do in the playoffs. Um, and, you know, the main thing is the fact that he's been hurt. He's been hurt the, both the years that he's been in the league. Health permitting, I think he can make a small bit where he's going to be able to play kind of like borderline just all-star numbers or just borderline just starter numbers in general and just being able to play a little bit more basketball and, and being able to get the shots off. Like we know what he's able to do. He's a legendary high school player, had a decent career at, at Duke for that one year, but I think now he'll be able to really get into his bag. He can help spell out DeAndre Hunter whenever he needs to get a break. Um, and he can play. I mean, he can guard ones, ones, twos, and threes. I don't think he's going to be a, like a four or five guy, but he can guard the positions, and that's very valuable in the league not, right now too. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about both of you guys' choices, besides the fact that they both stay, play the same position and they're both going to be up for some bread um, this upcoming summer, is the other thing is they both have showed flashes in interesting parts of the season, right? DeAndre Hunter, before getting injured early last season, was the one who was popping off. Um, playing relatively well on both sides of the floor was starting to show a little bit of a deeper bag too, which was really interesting because we didn't see a lot of the, you know, the step back moves and things like that back in Virginia, but he really kind of delved into that bag last season before getting injured. And then you talk about a guy like Cam Reddish. They pulled that man as a relief pitcher at one point in the playoffs and played some solid minutes and came up big on the defensive end and, um, that Milwaukee series and granted I mean it didn't go as far as they would have liked I think that would have been a situation where honestly considering how things were going I still argue that the situation they were in if Trey Young did not get injured that would have been a much more competitive series than it even was um and I think that's a lot to be able to build off for those two I'm actually going to go a different route and go for a little bit of an older guy in terms of my pick, and that's going to be DeLon Wright. And I know that's going to be kind of an odd pick considering the fact that he's not somebody that we're going to see as a consistent core um, member for this team moving forward. But in terms of this team and what they plan on doing now with a team that wants to make a legitimate playoff run after tasting some success last year, right, the biggest thing that hurt this Atlanta Hawks team was the non-Trey Young minutes. This is something that is like legitimately plagued them since his first year in the NBA. And it's been one of those things that they haven't been able to really improve. You guys remember, they signed Rajon Rondo last year. And that stay was not as welcomed as we would have liked, considering the <laughs> fact that Rajon Rondo was coming off of an NBA championship. And, I mean, making the trade for Lou Williams worked out for both sides, um, at least for the most part, in terms of the exchange with the Clippers. But I think that DeLon Wright, a guy who averaged 10 points, 4 rebounds, and 4 assists last year, he's going to be a guy to keep the ship stirred um, when a guy like Trey Young is off the floor. And they have the kind of talent at the forward spots where DeLon Wright's not going to have to go get buckets like Trey Young is. Um, Trey Young is a lot of the the scoring mechanism on the first unit, but he also was a big time facilitator. And that's the way that they get some of these other guys, John Collins, Capella, and so on and so forth involved. Their second unit, I think you can have a guy like DeLon Wright just stare at a ship and have a guy like Kevin Herter really take things over. And Brooks, that also is where your guy Cam Reddish comes into play because on that second unit, He's going to be another one of those guys who I think they're going to rely on to get buckets and shoot threes. So um, I'm going to go with DeLon Wright just out of the fact that I think Atlanta has been longing for some solid backup guard minutes. And when you have DeLon Wright and Lou Williams to lean on in those minutes, 
that's going to be huge in terms of their ability to stay in games throughout the regular season. Of course, we know playoff time. Trey Young's not going to play all the minutes. He's going to occupy a lot of them, but they're going to need to be able to spell him four to five minutes without blowing leads. I think DeLon Wright will be able to do that. Um, let's talk about the Boston Celtics. This is one of those topics. If you guys are not a long-time Hoop Talk podcast listener, our homie Ian Evans, uh, shout-out to the bro. Going to be working with Bleacher Report soon. Really proud of uh, what he's doing, about to be moving to Atlanta soon. This is his squad, and this is always an interesting discussion here on HTP because of the fact that Boston has been a really interesting team over the last two years in particular, right, as a team that's kind of bumped their head on the playoffs but have not truly maximize um the young talent that they've had in terms of being able to make you know deep playoff runs the eastern conference finals obviously has been something they've seen here and there but i don't think we've actually seen the best of the boston celtics yet and considering that there's a lot of new faces when you talk about um set of circumstances you know obviously Kimball walker is no longer there they picked up josh richardson brought back uh, Big Daddy Al Horford, uh, bring in Ime Yudoka at the coaching position, move Brad Stevens up, which was an interesting decision as well. A lot of different things going on with Boston. Brooks, I'm going to start with you this time, bro. The guy that stands out the most to just about anybody when we talk about the seeds, right, has to be Jason Tatum. Mm-hmm. And I have gone on the record a few times in the last couple of months that I think that this is the year that Jason Tatum can legitimately step into what would be a top five MVP candidacy race. My question to you is, do you believe that JT actually has the capability within this season to make that kind of push? He's been a guy that's improved every single season. Um, and last year, things were a little bit stagnant, but you could argue that COVID and things also had a lot to do with that. Do you think that this is the year that he makes that MVP slash top 10 player in the league jump? And if so, what do you think will be required of him to be able to stand out like that kind of player? And if you don't think it's on the table, tell me why. Like you said, man, Jason Tatum has improved every single year that he's been in the league. He just had a pair of 50-point games. He literally saved the Celtics from getting swept in the playoffs last year. I mean, and they they get rid of... Uh, Kimball Walker, Gordon Hayward's no longer there. Kyrie Irving's no longer there. I mean, the setting is is sweet for him. Like, there's no other way for him to go other than MVP level type of play. And he's gonna have some tough competition because I believe it's gonna be him. I see Luca in there once again. I said I said that last year. Um, I still believe that Luca's an MVP kind of guy. Uh, I mean, you have to put LeBron James in there, even though I think his his MVP. Level days are gone, or MVP winning days are gone. But um, yeah, I mean, he, he definitely has a chance to win. I think he can. I think he can win. Um, as far as just what he has to average, I would say. I mean, the Celtics. Okay, well, let me let me say this first. Again, my personal belief for MVP is best player on the best team. So they got to win at least sixty games. They ha- Jason Tatum's got to be averaging an even bigger career high, like at least thirty points a game be right there with the top five scores, top three scores. And, you know, defensively, he's got to step up even more because it's him and, J- and Jalen Brown. And, you know, people are going to say that they're a quote-unquote redundant duo and that they play almost similarly as far as just being, like, f- capable of being future scorers. But I think it's Jason Tatum's team. It's his time to, to lead. 
And I think, again, storylines and just the way he's going to play, it's going to be right for him to win MVP this year. Yeah, so, Ryan, I actually want to go to you and piggyback off of something that Brooks said in terms of what his classifications of being able to actually win an MVP is, right? So, first off, what do you believe are some of your personal criteria in terms of being able to win the MVP? And then take that and apply that to Jason Tatum in terms of whether or not you believe that with his current situation – he can actually meet that criteria and be within that top five conversation. I think I mainly look at two things. I look at his numbers and I look at his team. I think the numbers speak for himself. I mean, he's putting up MVP level numbers regardless of whether or not he's in the MVP level, whether or not he's in the MVP conversation. But I think the real issue comes down to the team around him. Um, we can make this argument with Bradley Beal where you know, every every year Bradley Beal was putting up 30-plus points a game, and you would always see him in the MVP conversation, but he would never win it. Why is that the case? Because the Washington Wizards aren't helping him win games. The Wizards last year finished 10th in the Eastern Conference and helped get into the playoffs through the play-in tournament. So that gave him a little bit of a case for whether or not he would win MVP, but I think the team around him needs to help him win games. And I think that's the big thing with Jason Tatum. And Brooks nailed it right on the head. I think that this team needs to win at least 60 games for them to, for him to be considered, a re, for him to be really in this conversation for MVP. But I think if he can just continue to improve and the team improves around him, I think he has a great chance to win MVP. I think that's a really interesting point talking about the 60 games thing just out of the mere fact that I think the last time we saw an MVP win it and it wasn't really predicated off of team success too much was probably Russell Westbrook's triple-double year, the first real one. And that was so <laughs> unprecedented because of, like, the the historical implications of it, right? So, of course, the big thing that you have to lean on if Jason Tatum is not able to help lead the Celtics to a 50, I'm going to say more of like a 50-win season. You know, we're back in the 82-game stretch, so I, I want to say that 50 games um, plus puts you in a realistic lane for that, especially in the Eastern Conference. I think that's arguable. Um, but I do – understand where you guys are coming from when you guys talk about the win um the win total having a lot of influence on things because there's a lot of stat sheet stuffers in the NBA nowadays and with things being so offensively predicated guys are putting up career highs on a regular basis I was listening to a podcast the other day where apparently although Shea Gilgis Alexander played a limited amount of games last season he was in a historical conversation that included guys like Michael Jordan <laughs> when talking about his stat line, that, I think wow. that just goes to tell you how like inflated the numbers nowadays are. So I do definitely lean to you guys in that favor of team success having a lot to do with it. One of the other things that I think is going to be really important too, obviously, and it plays a factor every single year, is the narrative for the for the Boston Celtics in terms of what to expect for them, right? The, the interesting thing about the Celtics is I'm not really sure what their narrative is besides the fact that it seems like a lot of a lot of people in the media are a little bit lower on them than I would anticipate. I think that they improved significantly through some of the offseason moves they did by picking up Josh Richardson, sharing up their center position by having Robert Williams back next to a guy like Al Horford who could play the four, bringing back Enos Cantor, having a guy like Dennis Schroeder come off the bench, knowing that Peyton Pritchard is going to be a guy in year two who's going to have a little bit more responsibility. 
Um, shout out to the boy Aaron Neesmith too. That 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 guy is he's been looking pretty right this offseason between um between summer league and uh what we've already seen so far in the short stint of the preseason. So I'm gonna kind of pose the question to you guys, and I, Ryan, I'm actually gonna start with you on this one. What do you believe the storyline for the Celtics is this season in terms of what kind of wave they're riding on? Because I think it's really interesting. I mean, one of the bigger things you can lean on is, right, like they have a whole new coach, um, a whole new system, um, and we're done with the Danny Ainge era. Is Jason Tatum's coming out party also at the end uh, or at the be- the beginning of the end of Danny Ainge's, you know, story? Like where where do you view this storyline heading for Boston that will play in Jason Tatum's favor? I'm not really sure, actually. I'm not sure either, and I I do have a lot of questions about where this team goes um, this season because there is that there's still a hole at point guard. Even though I I feel like Marcus Smart should be the starting point guard of this team, but there's definitely questions about who will be the starting point guard of this team. I think in terms of the narrative, yeah, I I'm not really sure what the narrative could be for this season because where there's a new coach who definitely brings a new sense of energy and new confidence to this team, and I think his system will allow Jason Tatum to shine even more than what he's already been doing. Um, I think I think what, what could also be interesting this year, I think Jason Tatum could get some triple doubles, especially with some with his playmaking ability. I think with the offense being opened, being open for him to shine, I don't really see anything stopping him especially with the MVP conversation. I think this is the the first real year that he can win MVP. So, Brooks, before we move on to Brooklyn, I want to ask you a quick little question about Boston in regards to the storyline, the storylines that move forward. And it has a little bit to do with Jason Tatum's supporting cast. I have um, questions, so to speak, about <laughs> Boston in terms of what they have moving forward. I think that they have an interesting amount of depth when you look at the kind of guys that they added and the kind of internal um, improvement that they could potentially see. But with Jason Tatum playing at an MVP caliber level, right, let's cap it at, let's, let's say that we believe that he'll be able to play to a top five MVP candidate level. Where do you think that with the supporting cast that they have, the Boston Celtics could top out at in terms of the Eastern Conference standings? What do you think is a realistic um, reach point or goal in the seeding for the Boston Celtics with the kind of supporting cast that, they, that he has, along with Jason Tatum, if he's playing at that MVP level? Man, I mean, I, I, I say Tatum's got to – they got to win 60 wins. They got to win 60 games in order to be MVP candidate for Jason Tatum. But with Jalen Brown there, a little bit of an older Al Horford. Uh, I mean, I don't even who who starts at the one. Who's who's you know? It's just it's a lot of it's it's it's, it's as many questions about the sporting cast as there are about the coach too. Because Ime Udoka, he's got a lot to prove in terms of can he coach you know two superstar talents and Jason. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, like how is he going to fill these Brad Stevens shoes? Because Brad Stevens was a coach or was a coaching genius, I should say. So how can Ime stack up to that, man? I mean, I don't know. I think they can top out at 55, 56 wins. And I think 
in order for that to happen, I think Jalen Brown's got to put up at least 24, along with Jason Tatum's 30. Uh, Al Horford's got to put up at least like 15 and 15 and 8, I would say, in order for them, I think, to fully get their full potential out. I mean, when they were getting to that Eastern Conference Finals without Kyrie Irving there, I mean, all, those three were like the biggest guys, plus Terry Rozier. Terry Rozier is out. Al Horford, I think, is a more anchorable piece as far as just being a defensive guy and a guy that can help you get into some sets. And even with what Ryan said about Jason Tatum getting some triple doubles, I mean, I can see that happening too. I don't think – I think it would meet – I think it could top out at like 10, 10 triple doubles really. I don't think he's going to be putting them up regularly though, but he's going to be stuffing the stat sheets for sure. So, I mean, based on what you guys have said, I mean, we believe that this is still like a top six – playoff caliber team right yeah, I would say the top team that three. we think is gonna oh top three okay I, top three. I think they're gonna be up there with with the bucks and the nuts as far as okay. being dangerous and that's actually that's where i asked you the question in terms of like where did you think they could top out at if jason tatum plays at an mvp level because i think after you get past the top two in the east you kind of can put the order wherever you want to, right? Philly is kind of in an interesting spot considering the Ben Simmons uh, situation. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, the Miami Heat, I think people are like drastically overrating. We'll talk about them a little bit later because I think that their depth is a really big question. And I think people are just kind of like looking at the names that Miami Heat have and kind of just like rolling with that as like shoe-ins. And I think that, especially in the regular season, it's going to go way beyond that. And then some of the other teams that obviously come to mind in terms of playoff caliber teams, Indiana, extremely hurt across the board. New York, people have their personal questions about. Toronto, people are extremely low on, which I think is uh, a mistake as well. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Washington, uh, Chicago, teams like that, they're still kind of in prove-it mode. So I think after the first two, you really – can open the field up, and I don't think you'll have a wrong answer in terms of what you feel like the order of seeding is because I think after the top two, I mean, you can pick whoever you want. I think there's, I think there's a legit dogfight in the Eastern Conference, which is something that we can't say or haven't said, I should say, in a long, in a long time. Speaking of a team that's not going to be really in this mix, at least to my personal preference, or basically, basically what I believe. The Brooklyn Nets are not going to be in this dogfight mix. I do not think they're going to have any problems whatsoever, even if they're not battling in the uh, Eastern Conference bracket in terms of, you know, fighting for position. I think they're going to end up as a playoff team. And a, a lot of people argue that they are not only the favorites to come out of the East, but the favorites to win the championship this year. And with that being the case, it's like, okay, when you have questions about teams, if a team is favored to win the championship, what what could you really be worried about? Well, um, Kyrie Irving makes this very easy on all of us, right? He makes it very easy for us to ask uh, what the potential future of the Nets can look like. And um, maybe this doesn't age well. Maybe Kyrie pulls an Andrew Wiggins and makes a strong decision to get the vaccination. But as of right now, when we're recording this on October 6th, Kyrie Irving's vaccination status is still highly in question. So, Brooks, I'm going to start with you on this one, bro. What are your thoughts on this vaccination situation, specifically regarding Kyrie Irving? And how do you feel the Nets will fare if Kyrie Irving is to miss, you know, all, if not a majority of the home games for Brooklyn this year? 
Man, it's a complicated situation. It's it's very complicated just because um I mean you you see on one end Andrew Wiggins was saying you know I'm not gonna get it because he wanted to get a religious exemption and then he he basically got denied from that um and then he ended up just folding and saying you know what I'm just gonna deal with it I'm I don't want to miss out on the money and I'm gonna you know just get the vaccine whatever I think Kyrie Irving is a lot more entrenched into his into his stances and i think that depending on the leadership of kevin durant and james harden that could be a detriment to the team just because this is your top three guy he's been injury prone he's been injury prone his whole career and you want to have a guy that you can depend on and i know that those three are, are close off the court you know, and, you know, Kevin Durant has that live last year defending Kyrie and, you know, they're going back and forth, all these different things. But if you're, when you're depending on a guy to help you win a championship and he doesn't do that, that like it just, it just makes it harder to rely, to, to want to be around you or rely on you off, like on and off the court. And I think if depending on the ego is not depending on what, what the situation becomes, it's just going to be harder for the Nets. Like you don't need this unnecessary, um, you know, un- unnecessary uh, distraction, I guess you could say. I think, and and also this, I think Kyrie just doesn't care about the money anymore. I think he's just okay with whatever's going to go on. Like, he, he'll be willing to sacrifice and not play a year or be a, a, a part-time player like a legend, like Walsh said that he might be designated to, which is, that's a hell of a, that's a hell of a thing to become, a part-time player making that money that Kyrie Irving is making right now. Um, I don't, I don't know, man. It's 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 it's, it's going to be unnecessarily difficult. I respect the fact that Kyrie is like anchoring down, and he's he's not just going to do it because people want him to do it. Like, if if at this point, if you're going to do it, then you're already going to do it. And he has decided not to do it. Uh, you know, people like Jonathan, I mean, yeah, Jonathan Isaacs and Draymond Green are be- beautifully eloquent about it. Kyrie chose not to be. We know that he's kind of like the fake intellectual type of guy, and he, he wants to be fake deep all the time. But you know, I respect it, and whatever he decides to do is what he decides to do. I'm, he's not making—I'm not making the type of money he's making, so you know, I think it'd be straight regardless. I mean, I understand what you're saying, especially because you, you talk about the part-time player aspect of him, and it's hilarious because of the fact that he's such a top-end talent, and the fact that we talk so much more about um, his off-the-court. I don't even want to call it antics, but persona more so. Um, we talk about that much more than his production on the court. And I mean, Kyrie Irving was like a legit, like all pro level player last year. You know what I mean? When he was on the floor, the issue was the, the disappearing acts here and there where, you know, he would take personal leave and things like that. And that was what was interfering with actually seeing with your two eyes that like Kyrie Irving had a really solid season last year. And then, um, Ryan, I'm actually going to go to you be- with this next portion because I think that something Brooks said is really interesting in terms of what you look at for the Nets moving forward is you talk about the kind of money that Kyrie Irving makes right now, right? And obviously, you know, you, we don't go dig- digging through anybody's pockets here. That's not how we operate. Um, but at the same time, it does have implications on the kind of flexibility that a team can have, the kind of things that they're able to do moving forward. And one of the bigger things for the team is – Kyrie Irving is he's extension eligible 
Like, that's a guy who is, you know, he's got some money potentially due moving forward that the Nets have to ask themselves, you know, is this a guy that we can rely on enough that if we give him this extension, we know he's here for the long run? So I actually want to ask you a question that I'm not super sure has a right answer, but I want to get your thoughts on it. Do you believe especially if Kyrie Irving is in a situation, because remember, this vaccination stuff is only really applicable to New York and California. So this is this is not something that's going to impact him if he's on the Philadelphia 76ers, which is a team that's like been brought up in the past, right? Yeah. So say that this vaccination situation becomes a legitimate issue um, this season and becomes something that if we go into the regular season, if it's not solved, could have actual implications on how much Kyrie Irving plays for the Nets. Ryan, if you are in the Nets front office, are you contemplating thinking up, scheming up potential trade options to move Kyrie Irving or considering his relationship with Kevin Durant, considering the kind of top end talent that he is, considering the kind of production he can give you in the games he is able to play, do you hold on to him knowing that he is a kind of talent that is pretty hard to duplicate? I would have to say I would hold on to him because this is – let's keep in mind what Kyrie Irving is as a point guard. He's a phenomenal ball handler. He's a great scorer. He's a great facilitator and playmaker as well. I feel like it would backfire on the Brooklyn Nets if they got rid of him, regardless of what ha- was happening to Kyrie Irving right now. I think, it, and let's let's look at the the impact of Kyrie Irving not being on the floor, specifically in the Milwaukee series, because remember Kevin Durant had to go into that series pretty much playing by himself. I mean, James Harden wasn't a hundred percent, and other Brooklyn Nets were struggling, so KD had to put on a great game. He had to put on a great performance in Game 7 and push the game to overtime in order for this team to actually have a chance to make it past the Milwaukee Bucks. But I think Kyrie Irving helps this team not only reach the one seed in the Eastern Conference but win the championship. I think he's that much of a difference maker. I think that's fair because the big thing that you talk about, especially last season, was the lack of shot creation that they had. I do think that they – I think they – made certain adjustments this offseason. I think the pickup of Patty Mills is like very applicable to this conversation in terms of the kind of depth they've added. So one could wonder if they could live without having Kyrie Irving, without having Kyrie Irving for home games. I think they would survive. But I think the point that you're making, I think the point that should be emphasized is that but do you get the best version of what the Brooklyn Nets can be? Are they the outright favorites in the entire NBA if they only have the duo of James Harden and Kevin Durant as opposed to the trio that includes Kyrie Irving. I think that's a fair point because I think their their trio, along with some of the depth that they have, talk about Nick Claxton. You talk about they got LaMarcus Aldridge back, which is going to be they got, they got Cam Thomas over there too. They got Cam Thomas, who I think is going to be a bucket. If not for them – He's definitely going to kill in the G League, right? We're definitely going to talk about him on a lot of G League segments this season, considering the fact that he he's going to be a killer down there. Hey, um, shout out to G League TV, too. Go check out uh, 
Go check out the boys' interview with with Jeffrey Sosa too, man. Yes, sir, bro. Yes, sir. That's that's uh, that's gonna be a really interesting topic because Brooklyn Brooklyn has a handful of guys who could be in that in that little area where they could be competing either on the main roster or at the, on the G League level. When you talk about the fact that they also have Kessler Edwards, who's gonna be interesting as well, and uh, Marcus Zigorowski and so on and so forth, guys that are actually gonna really fill out their depth chart. So. I agree with you to keep Kyrie Irving because of the kind of talent he is, but I do think that it's been brought up in theory as something that maybe Brooklyn should experiment with or at least consider. But I think we'll have to kind of see how this whole thing plays before you can truly make a decision on whether or not, you know, that's the choice. This is not as deep as the Ben Simmons scenario where you're worried about the fact of him literally eating up a roster spot and not providing any minutes for you as a guy who's holding out, right? As opposed to um Kyrie Irving, who, in the words of Brooks and as Woj mentioned, at least is playing on a part-time basis and mm-hmm. does maximize your championship uh, uh position or championship quality. And before we – oh, I just want to bring up a couple more points before we move on. I'm sorry. Very good. Kyrie, Kyrie Irving could potentially miss what forty-seven games because it's forty-one in in at home, of course, in the crib. What three? No, th- yeah, three in New York or three in I'm not sorry, not three in New York, but three in uh, in California against the Kings, Clippers, Warriors, State, Lakers, too. and the Lakers. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's four games, and then two in New York whenever they play against the next against the Knicks. That's a lot of game checks to miss. That's yeah. a lot of that's a lot of like chemistry that you lose. I mean, but James Harden and Kyrie Irving and KD, like you saw that they were able to work off each other whenever they were able to play. But like chemistry is a real thing. You you got to get that down. And then not only that, but then like you know Ryan, you brought up the fact that Kyrie Irving is a great point guard, and we know he's able to get deep into his bag. But then James Harden is a guy who's going to be able to be the facilitator and like be the playmaker and all that. Kyrie's going to be able to do whatever he wants as far as just, you know, showing off his wizardry and all that. How is that going to affect the team moving forward when the guy just comes in for, what, 35 games, whatever it is, and just goes from there? It's going to be interesting. Plus, we don't know if he's going to get injured or not again, too. So what could happen with that? Yeah, I mean, this is you want to talk about chemistry. This is a team that we didn't get to really see their optimal lineup often, if at really at all, in terms of possessions last season. and. This definitely does not help them, Brooks, kind of just to like fill out that last point that you made about the kind of money he would be missing. The report is that if he were to miss the type of time that he's staring at, it could be somewhere up, uh, up between about 20 to 25 million within just this season alone. Um, I, I know we're speaking from a civilian uh, standpoint, but uh, I still think that anybody and their mama could say that's a lot of bread. So um, <laughs> definitely a, a, a big boy decision to make. Um, let's move on. And I, I, I kind of want to just kind of take that idea of a big boy decision and kind of moving on to this next team talking about the Charlotte Hornets. And um, Ryan, I'm going to start with you. This offseason, Charlotte elected not to really spend big money on the center position, which I thought was really interesting considering the fact that that is easily their weakest position on the floor across the board. Um, the first thing I have to ask you when you take a, when you take a look at this is, do you believe that that 
is going to limit or hold them back in terms of the potential they have as a legitimate playoff team? Or do you think that their young talent can thrive in spite of that? Because this offseason, they might not have put a bunch of money into the center position, but across the board, they committed a lot of assets to maximizing some of the things that LaMelo Ball does well. So could doing that out maybe outweigh not putting money into the center position? Or do you think that if they don't make a a big splash move for a a, a, a truly nameable center before the trade deadline, this team is wasting a year of what could be a potential, you know, a potential playoff berth? I think that they have to rely on their young talent for them to win games. And regardless of where, whether or not they have a serviceable center, I think that this team can easily be a play-in team, a play-in contender. I think that with the play of Lamelo Ball continually improving, I think they also had a great draft. They also had James, they got James Booknight from UConn. It was a great scorer. Kai Jones, who I think will get a lot of minutes at the center position. I think he has, a, I think he has a lot of upside and. Also, I wouldn't be surprised to see P.J. Washington at the center position as well, being a small ball five. So I do think that this team has a lot of young talent. I don't think they've peaked yet. We, they also have a lot of experience, too. They have Terry Rozier. They have Gordon Hayward um, get, giving them a lot of minutes as well. Uh, you also let go of Devontae Graham, which I think opens the door for James Booknight to really shine as a guard on this team, as a possible starting two guard on this team. So I think there's definitely a lot of possibilities for the Charlotte Hornets. I do think that the center position will be something to watch out for this season, mainly because they don't have a a starting center, an actual starting center right now. So maybe Kai Jones can grow into that role. Maybe PJ Washington holds it down as a small ball five. I think we're gonna. We're, I think we'll find out the answer to that question this season. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, their front court is the biggest question overall. I mean, you know, Gordon Hayward is a guy who you almost have to expect to miss time um, every season, and you have to kind of factor that in when talking about your depth. Kelly Oubre is already day-to-day of due to injury right now, and is going to be a guy that they're going to be looking to integrate into this offense. Um, but I think he will be an interesting fit considering that he – with Charlotte provides a lot more of what they need from him as opposed to maybe what Golden State needed from him last season. I think this is a better fit for them. Miles Bridges is a guy who I think fits perfectly well with LaMelo Ball. The question with him is just really more so about like if some of the things we saw from him last season were real. I think one of the bigger things that stands out is the fact that like he shot 40% from three last year. Like if that's for real, Miles Bridges is going to be like a legit player at the power forward position for this team. And like you said before, Aaron Ryan, I mean, we're talking about our main center rotation for this team being small ball five, PJ Washington and Mason Plumley, who I think Mason Plumley at least fits on this team a little bit better than Cody Zeller. I, I, think, I feel like we all can agree that that might at least be a better substitution, but this team looks really interesting at the one through four between LaMelo, Terry, Gordon, Miles, Kelly, um, even PJ to a certain extent. 
But the fact that the center rotation in, in its full capacity really has to be maximized with Mason Plumley rounding out the, the starting five, I feel like it's a little bit underwhelming considering the kind of centers that were on the market this offseason. So, Brooks, I actually want to ask you a different question um, regarding this team, and it has to do with building off of last year, right? So this is a team that I wouldn't say did a lot in the offseason that would – um, make us believe that they're going to take some kind of significant jump besides the fact that maybe LaMelo Ball starting the season from from the, the word go might make them a better team from the beginning and pay dividends late. But what what are your personal expectations in year two of the LaMelo Ball era for the Charlotte Hornets? Because I feel like expectations for these young teams sometimes can be set a little too high depending on how well their their star player plays. Um, and I think some people project Charlotte to already be like a lock for somewhere between eight through 10. And I'm just not necessarily sure if that is the case. So what are your realistic expectations for Charlotte going into this year? Just a fun NBA league pass team that's going to be interesting to watch and be very scrappy on a nightly basis. Is this a team that you think legitimately can lock up somewhere in the one through eight? Where do you where do you view the trajectory of this team? Yeah, I I see them as a very very fun NBA league NBA league pass type of team. Um, this isn't a team that I would want to run back with. Like I I, w- I would have spent the money necessary to get a center just to like build up again, build up that culture, build up um, you know that defensive identity, I guess. Because yeah, Lamelo Ball is going to be great. Gordon Hayward's gonna be special in, in different places. Terry Rozier's gonna show off what he get, what he can do. But you know, it all starts with defense and and how you're gonna be able to have like an interior presence. Make sure that guys aren't just gonna be able to do whatever they want to at the rim. You know what I mean? Uh, Miles Plumley, as good as he can be, just isn't that guy moving forward. He can be a bench guy, but I don't want him to be my starting center all 82 games. You know what I mean? So if you can if you can make a trade there, then I would say so. I mean. The Lakers don't need DeAndre Jordan. They already got Dwight Howard and Anthony Davis. Maybe you can make a play for him. I mean, it's, it's, it's more than enough big bodies to go around that you can actually make a play for somebody that can be more than serviceable, uh, like, a, like a Moss Plumley. Um, but that being said, man, I, I see them being more of an 11th place team, just scratching that play in. Maybe if Lamelo Ball and Gordon Hayward go off at the same time, they can make a run for that 10th seed. But we saw what happened last year. They they severely underwhelmed in those playing games. So I don't think this is a team that's ready to make that leap just yet. And maybe that's why they didn't make a move for a center. But this is the NBA, man, and this is LaMelo Ball. Like We know that small market, small market teams don't always get to hold on to their superstars. Not everyone's going to be like a Dame Lillard or Giannis. So you got to maximize every year that you can. And I think this is just going to be another tough year for, for the Hornets and LaMelo Ball. I mean, I think it's interesting that you put it that way just out of the fact that I don't know if tough is necessarily the word. I mean, of course, if that may be how it's considered if you're one of those guys who considers not making the playoffs as a rough year. But I think that this team, considering the fact that they're trying to establish a core, I mean, let's be real. The, the Michael Jordan-led era of Charlotte has been a very difficult one in terms of trying to acquire talent. And this has been the first time in a long time, that Charlotte actually looks like they could be in the mix, not only for the playoffs, but as a team that 
legitimately is watchable. You know what I mean? Which is, I think, maybe even more important for a team on the rise like that. So I think the main thing is just if they can identify, if the guys that they identified in this draft, I'm, I'm mainly speaking towards guys like James Booknight and Kai Jones, who I don't think Kai Jones is going to contribute like right away. He's going to be a guy, I think they're going to put him in the G League, like primarily um, just out of the mere fact that he's still so extremely raw as a talent. But if these kind of guys, along with the fact of like identifying whether or not Miles Bridges is a long-term small forward power forward for them, because he's up for an extension as well. Like he's a guy who's going to be due some money too. And it's going to be a really big question as to whether or not he is worth said money. Right. So I think winning, being a winning basketball team is a great caveat for this squad. But I think the big question for Charlotte is just whether or not the talent that they identify, the guy they took a flyer out on in this draft can potentially materialize into guys that can become a part of like a long-term core, which is going to be really important in terms of, you know, Brooks, what you said beforehand in terms of like this being a team that like LaMelo Ball wants to stick around on for a long time. So Charlotte's, Charlotte's interesting because I think that winning won't tell the whole story for their season. One team that winning will tell the story for is the Chicago Bulls. Let me tell you this right now. I'm not playing any games <laughs> with this team at all. We got to go get buckets. We got to be a top six seed. I'm, it doesn't have to be that deep, but like I would like to at least make the playoffs this year if I'm Chicago. This this drought is slowly but surely getting a little too long for me um, personally. But um, Ryan, let's talk about the Bulls, man. Um, I was just jumping up and down on my couch after watching the preseason game against the Cavaliers, and it already has me set up to potentially have my heart hurt if this season does not go well. But nonetheless, I will say that the big money that they spend in the offseason, grabbing guys like DeMar DeRozan, who they might have overpaid for, depending on who you talk to, uh, the sign-and-trade for Lonzo Ball, which is starting to slowly but surely already show dividends, acquiring a guy like Alex Caruso, picking up my boy Ayo DeSuma from Illinois in the draft. They're not even healthy right now. Patrick Williams is out. Kobe White is out. Um, they're still trying to integrate guys like Stanley Johnson and um, Elizia Johnson as well. So this is an interesting squad that spent a lot of bread with the anticipation of hopefully making our superstar guard, Zach Levine, happy enough to want to re-sign next offseason, considering that this is a guy heading into a contract year and is looking at a max contract somewhere. So before I give what my expectations are as the crazed fan on the podcast, I'm going to talk to you guys for a second, get you guys' perspective on what you guys believe the realistic expectations for the Bulls are and maybe to take it a step further what do you see in this Bulls team's future in terms of what they could be this season whether it's whether it's just like something about their lineup that stands out to you where you think they could be in the standings whether or not you feel like they're overrated or underrated like what are your view what are your personal viewpoints on the Bulls Ryan I'm gonna start with you because I feel like I might be walking into this with the blinders on, so I want to get a little perspective. So I look at this Bulls team, and I think that they are a playoff contender. I think that this team can easily make a run at the fifth seed and have a and have an Atlanta Hawks type season. I think that this is this is the ceiling 
for this team, especially with the amount of star power that they they acquired in the offseason. I think Lonzo Ball coming off the season that he had in New Orleans was a great pickup as somebody that you can have as your starting point guard. And I think it's better when you think about the fact that he pairs up well with Zach Levine in terms of play style, that those two will gel better than Kobe White and Zach Levine did as the former backcourt. I think Kobe White is better off the bench as a guy who can either be the sixth or seventh man immediately off the bench and give you 15 a game. Um, I think DeMar DeRozan was another solid pickup just because of his versatility on the offensive side of the ball. Um, great mid-range shooter. I think that, you know, as somebody that could play the one through the four, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Billy Donovan decides to experiment with some of these lineups with DeMar DeRozan as the starting point guard. I think Alex Caruso, another guy that I think can run in the backcourt with the second unit along with Kobe White, I think he could gel well possibly next to him. But that's best-case scenario, and that's – I don't I, – I think that's the best chance that the Bulls have of making an impact this year with this roster to satisfy Zach Levine. Worst-case scenario is that they they miss the playoffs – and the moment they, they that they missed the playoffs, Jalen comes on this podcast and starts ranting about how bad this Bulls team was. I think that they have the capability of making a play a, a playoff run as the fifth seed. But if it's worst case scenario, this team misses the playoffs, and we get an unhappy co-host here on the Hoop Talk podcast. Yeah, man, it's definitely gonna hurt my soul if they miss the pod. I, Ryan, if you remember a, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was a, a month and some change ago, I made a bold declaration that all three of my Eastern Conference fandoms, considering you know my locale is a guy who's moved around a lot, um, in his uh you know short twenty two years on Earth, I've this expectation, this you know this this uh this shoe in bet with myself so to speak on the HCP that all three of my teams in the Atlanta Hawks, the Chicago Bulls, and the Washington Wizards will make the playoffs. Um this is the team that scares me the most, actually. Despite the fact that I have serious questions about the Washington Wizards, this is the team that scares me the most because of the expectation. I am scared that the expectations heaped on the rest of the the rest of the roster around Zach Levine is going to be too much. And my biggest fear with them is that if we don't play up to our actual potential, Zach Levine is going to be looking elsewhere. This is a guy who spent a lot of time, you know, overseas in Tokyo playing on the Olympics around a lot of talent. He knows what talented basketball looks like now. He knows what superstar caliber cores look like. He knows what playing next to a guy who some could potentially argue maybe are are better than him you know he knows what that's like now and he knows what you know what it what it looks like to win as well you know coming out of that with a gold medal as well so this is a guy who i think is going to have some very thin patience in terms of the idea of being on a team that doesn't have a direction moving forward and so i think the play of the guys around him this year is going to be really important because if Zach does leave our core has got a lot of money invested in it. We don't, don't have a ton of draft capital um, moving forward, and there's not really a direction to look to if Zach Levine is not a part of it. So, Brooks, here's where I go with this one. Here's what I, here's what I want to ask you. But when it comes to this team, 
my understanding of what people feel about this team, and this is going to be a top five, top ten level offensive team, but they are going to struggle on the defensive end. And that is going to be what really, really defines whether or not this can be a playoff team or not, right? So my question to you is, do you feel like, let's name off some of the guys that are on this depth chart. Lonzo Ball, Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, Nikola Vucevic, uh, Kobe White, Alex Caruso, Derek Jones Jr., who I think will be interesting for this team. Troy Brown Jr., who's also going to be kind of interesting for this squad as well. Do you feel like the high-powered offense of this team can outbalance whatever defensive deficiencies people seem to be pointing out about Chicago? Or do you feel like if this team does not D up, they're going to be out of the playoffs? Listen, man. The Bulls are already off to a terrible start. Zach Levine missed a wide-open dunk last night. And when you had to have Lonzo Ball save that attempt, I think that's already a bad start. To this on, man. very, this. very confident era that Chicago Bulls seem, well, Chicago Bulls fans seem to have. I think that's very suspicious. No, but on, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, um, repeat, repeat the last part of your question, just so I can, just so I can get back, back on track. So this, and I, I knew this was gonna come up on the plot. The minute I saw it when I was watching the highlights earlier, I was like, "Oh man, somebody's not gonna let this go." Because I mean, that team was <laughs> flying around, and then you just have that happen, and you're just like, "Oh god." <laughs> but what I'm saying is, this looks like a high-powered offense, and I think they played relatively well on defense against Cleveland in the first preseason game. And I think they're gonna be a better defensive team than people give credit. But everybody views them as a team that's gonna be a bottom five defense, but a top five, top ten offense. Do you feel like? If that is the case, they can still be a, you know, a top eight team in terms of being able to make the playoffs. Or do you think being a bottom five defense is going to weigh them down so much that that's going to hurt their playoff chances? I don't think they're going to be a bottom five defense because you, you have athletes on that team. You have guys that have the ability to create turnovers and they're going to put on a show in transition. I don't think they're going to be a top or a bottom five defensive team. I think they're going to, at worst, I think they're going to be like, I say 26 to like 18 range. You know what I mean? I don't think they're going to be terrible. I think it could be definitely improved. My concern is how well is that offense going to mesh together? Because you have Lonzo Ball, you have Zach, you have DeMar DeRozan, uh, Patrick Williams. I don't know who rounds out the five. I mean, in the, the five position has been like in 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 a murky situation because of Laurie and we're not even gonna talk about Laurie Mar- marketing and how inconsistent he is. Now. We got Vucevic now. We got Nikola Vucevic now. So I mean, yeah, right. yeah, that's true too. That's Nikola. Yeah, and he's he barely got to play with Zach Levine last year too. So this mm-hmm. is a team that on paper is very dangerous. Like this is gonna be a fun Chicago Bulls team. Um, and I, I guess I, I know you're liking what I'm saying, Jalen, but. My confidence is like is is cautious optimism because again this is a first time team coming back together. How are Zach Levine and Nikola gonna uh, mesh together? Is Lonzo Ball gonna be able to prove his naysayers wrong and actually develop that in between game? Like we see, he's more confident than ever in his jumper, and I think that's the main thing that was missing from his game. Uh, Demar Derozan, mid range king, but again, how are you gonna mesh together with Zach Levine? So I'm excited for this team. 
But I I think I think they could be a seventh seed. I don't think they're going to be a top five. I don't think I think realistically, I think seventh seed is is I think that's pretty realistic. So we'll we'll see what happens though. So look, this is this is how I view it, and I'm gonna try to avoid being like too ranty about it because I want to make sure we get into these other teams. But Chicago is so interesting to me because I feel like a lot of people are down on them because they paid so much money for DeRozan in terms of pretty much. I mean, they were trading against themselves. They were, you know, they basically paying against themselves, and I think they might have, you know, definitely overpaid in terms of what they what they were going up against. But here's my thing. Having Lonzo Ball, Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, and even a guy like Alex Caruso on the floor gives you four ball handlers at all times. I feel like if you're in a situation where, say, the starting lineup only has three of those guys, probably Ball, Levine, and DeRozan, you have three ball handlers on the floor at all times. You have a guy, Nikola Vucevic, who pretty much wakes up out of bed with 20 and 10, right? This is, I mean, he did that for Orlando. That weren't a really good um they weren't a really good team around him either. You could say that they had interesting starters, but nobody that had the kind of top end talent that like Zach Levine, for example, did. You know, I mean, their next best guy after Vooch was Aaron Gordon. And I would not say that Aaron Gordon is anywhere close to the kind of player that Zach Levine is right now. And then go down the depth chart. I think guys like DeRozan and Ball also fall into that. Here's my thing. There's three things that I know for sure. I think we're going to lead the league and points off backdoor cuts. I think we are going to, like, go bananas off of that. I think the other thing is that I think we're going to be a top five team in terms of assists per game. I know that preseason is something that you don't want to hype up too much, but 36 assists in our first preseason game against the Cleveland Cavaliers, I think that's something that's duplicable. I think that's something that they can do on a consistent basis. And the fact that everybody on this team is open to sharing the ball, Alex Caruso, um, interesting finisher around the basket, a guy who's willing to dime out as well. He's going to be a fan favorite as much as Chicago as he was for the, for the Lakers. We already know what Lonzo Ball is as a passer. And DeMar DeRozan and Levine around the basket are going to be guys who on backdoor cuts are going to go crazy. And then the other thing that I, that I, and I don't, I don't want to say I penciled this in, but it goes off of something that you said beforehand, Brooks, which is talking about the athletes on this team. The, the, the kind of active hands that they have on this team on the one through four. I mean, Zach Levine, he, he picked up his defense in the Olympics last season. He, or, or this, this summer, he picked up his defense in the Olympics. And I'm hoping that that's something that transfers over to the regular season. Lonzo Ball, is a legitimate team defender and a guy who's going to catch passing lanes. DeMar DeRozan underratedly was an anchor for that San Antonio Spurs defense the last couple of years alongside Yaka Pertle. He was a guy who was playing the one through four for them and is going to be a guy who's going to be able to be versatile for this team as well. I'm going to put it this way, and Brooks kind of said it for me, but I'm going to kind of double down on it. (laughs) I think Chicago is going to be a lot better on defense than people are giving credit for. And if they are... Like Brooks said, between 16 and 25 in defense, along with the kind of high-powered offense they're going to have between running in transition, the fact that they're going to have half-court operator guys like Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan and Nikola Vucevic, if their offense is as high-powered as they look and their defense is even remotely in the range of what Brooks said, which is still like a bottom half of the league defense, but still within that 16 to 25 range, I think seven is a worst case scenario. That's how I'm going to put that. And that's extremely optimistic, but I, I genuinely believe that with the kind of talent they've added, that that can be the upside. 
On the other end, let's talk about the the Cleveland Cavaliers for a second, who I don't believe is going to actually be in this conversation very much. But they have a very interesting storyline that's going to be important throughout the regular season because I think it's something that's going to have implications, especially around the trade deadline. And that's Colin Sexton. Ryan, we talked about this a little bit when we had um when we did our Wheel of Fandom uh topic with Peter Burnett on the Cleveland Cavaliers, and it hasn't really been resolved very much, and that's regarding the trade, the tradeability or the possible uh tradeability of Colin Sexton, a guy who's going to be going into a contract year and has been shopped over to a bunch of interesting teams, but nothing has bit. So my question to you, Ryan, is A, do you believe that Colin Sexton will be traded by the trade deadline? And B, if you do believe he will be traded, where do you believe is the best possible landing spot in terms of realistically making a trade? You know what I mean? It has to be something where Cleveland can get something realistic back. Where is a place that you think that Colin Sexton realistically could end up? I don't think he gets traded because I think the Cavaliers don't have enough capital that's really enticing for other teams to want to give up Colin Sexton. Let's keep in mind that this team, the way that they're constructed right now, I think it's very interesting, to say the least. I think with the amount of forward depth that they acquired in the offseason, I think makes for a lot of interesting lineup choices. I think that this is a, this is a, this is a weird comparison, but I think this is, this is like the one year when the Pistons had Josh Smith, Andre Drummond, and Greg Monroe all in their starting lineup. And this team, I think, barely made the playoffs or barely missed the playoffs. This kind of has that similar feeling. I think that you need as much guard depth as possible. And I do think getting Ricky Rubio was a good move because you do need a veteran presence on the bench and can also give you a lot of minutes on the bench um, as a rotational point guard and a solid one at that. But Colin Sexton is a franchise player on this team. He is a phenomenal point guard, or here's, should I say shooting guard in the league. And I, I made this argument when we had our top 10 shooting guards list. I think he's a top 10 shooting guard. His scoring ability is something that is something you instantly point out about his game and I think is a difference maker whether or not this team wins games and whether or not this team doesn't win games. If you remember last year, he single-handedly defeated the Brooklyn Nets twice <laughs> last season. Twice. So there, there's so much potential for Colin Sexton as a franchise player in Cleveland that I think it's 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 going to be a disappointment to see him possibly getting traded. I don't know why you don't sign him to the max extension. I mean, he deserves it. He's improved in every in in a lot of categories: points, rebounds, assists. Like he's gotten better. Why not give him the max? I feel you, man. I, I feel like Cleveland is doing him a disservice. I feel like it's mad petty that the fact that he's actually been a model of consistency, if not actually improved every season. Um, in some category and somehow is just like getting slighted on a regular basis in that backcourt. And I think the combination of him and Darius Garland could actually be really interesting. I guess maybe their worry is that 
those two combined cannot top out as what, you know, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum are. And when you have a small backcourt like that, if they can't be that potent offensively, maybe they just believe they can't work. Maybe that's why they decided to go so dang big in their front court. Um, who knows? Um, Brooks, we're going to kind of try to start speeding through this back half of the Eastern Conference. And so I'm going to move to Detroit. And, you know, Ryan was talking about potential. And, of course, with Detroit, the big thing potential-wise is the impact of Kay Cunningham, their number one overall pick. And his impact on this team is going to have a lot of influence on the potential of this team, not only as um, a interesting team in the Eastern Conference, but a team that we could actually be talking about as a potential, you know, postseason um, postseason team on a regular basis, kind of returning back to the glory that once was, or or so to speak. So, for you, what do you believe is the kind of impact that you think that Kay Cunningham can have in year one? He's already coming into the year a little banged up, which is a bit of a concern, but I don't think that's going to hold him back too much. Based on what you've seen from him in uh, at Oklahoma State, as well as anything that you've seen from him in Summer League, what do you feel like his instant impact is in year one? Something that he can do from day one that will kind of help this team move forward. Man, I think him and Killian Hayes are going to be such a fun I don't know if they're going to run pick and roll together. I don't know if they're going to do like a two-on-one type of situations whenever they're doing pick and rolls and all that. But they're going to be a fun little one-two combination going on there along with Jerry and Grant. I mean, is it Jerry or Jeremy that's on that team? Jeremy. Jeremy, I'm sorry. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Blasphemy on the Hoop Talk, Hoop Talk podcast. <laughs> um, Jeremy Grant, I mean, he was a leading scorer for that team last year. And I think Cade and, and, and Jeremy are going to be trading back and forth for that title the whole year. I think... Jeremy's going to win out, though, just because he's a more experienced guy and he's going to be more confident coming in. But I think Kate Cunningham is just going to have a huge impact as far as just being a playmaker once again. He's going to be kind of like a de facto leader. I think just his personality, the way he plays the game, the way he approaches the game is going to be really beneficial to that locker room. Killian Hayes has got to prove that last year was kind of just, oh, he got injured. It was just an injury fluke. Uh, we'll see what happens. I like lefties, and I hope he's a great lefty for that franchise. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more excited than I usually would be for the Pistons just because of him. I don't think Cade Cunningham wins Rookie of the Year. I think Jaden Green does, but I think it's going to be a fun race as well. Like I think it's going to go as 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 the race typically goes. It's going to go to like who puts up the better numbers, and I think Jaden Green has the more possibility of doing that. He's going to explode for a couple thirty point games. I don't think Cade Cunningham is going to do that too often. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the the rookie of the year race. My my favorite is Jalen Green as well. And um I think one of the biggest questions for me with Cade is just what they decide to do. Are they gonna run him as a de facto point guard and have Killian Hayes next to them? Are they gonna have Killian Hayes come off the bench and lead his own unit as the primary guy for that? Um, are they gonna focus on having Cade more on the ball where he does most of his damage? That's what he, that's where he thrived at LK State. Or are they gonna try to open up his off the ball game, something that he is open to doing as a spot up shooter, catch and shoot, uh, three point guy? Is that gonna be the way that they go? The question with them is just how are they going to try to maximize Cade? Are they going to try to focus on him being a Swiss Army knife paper, a player for them? Or, the guy who runs the table. I think that their choice for that will tell us a lot about what they plan for him moving forward in terms of the kind of impact he can have on his team. But he's the number one overall pick, and he was pretty much the de facto number one overall pick from the beginning of the year. And although that was 
kind of coming into question closer to draft time. I think it didn't make enough headways to make Detroit waver, and I think they were just more so doing their homework. So it'll just be interesting to see what K does. He doesn't seem like one of those players that's going to like stuff the stat sheet, as you said before, and Brooks, but I think he's going to be a guy that fills up the box score in all the right areas, and that's going to be really important for them. Um, moving forward, Ryan, a team that I have the biggest questions for in this entire Eastern Conference is Indiana, bro. I, I mean, I, I'm just not sure about them. And um, every year, Ryan, I've told you this many times in the podcast. Any year that I bet against Indiana, they make me, they make me eat crow, bro. They make me feel some type of way. They end up, in, they end up finishing in the top four seed. And although they don't do well in the first round of the playoffs, they make you think that just with one little addition here or there that they could be a team that's legitimately dangerous in the Eastern Conference. My question to you, though, is a question that's been asked for years now, and that's about the combination of DeMontis Sabonis and Miles Turner. Do you think that they still have the chance, with Rick Carlisle, who I think is going to be an interesting face for them as a new face in the coaching ranks for them, especially after last year, which, Lord, was a dumpster fire across the board, this is a team that's still pretty injury prone. Got guys like TJ Warren and Karis LeVert already on the shelf. Uh, ideas of possibly moving on from Malcolm Brogdon. Of course, both Sabonis and Turner have been in trade talks as well. Do you think the combination of DeMondis Sabonis and Miles Turner can legitimately lead to an Eastern Conference contender or not? And if the answer is no, which one of those two do you believe that Indiana needs to trade? Um, I'm kind of surprised they're still going at it with this contendership. I think as a playoff team, their window is starting to close and it's very close to being shut. I'm not sure how long they can keep doing this. I'll be honest. I don't know how long they can keep doing this. They had multiple years where they were first round exits under Frank Vogel and Nate McMillan. And they had the disaster year last year under Nate Bjorkren. This year could possibly change things. I think that this is maybe their last chance at really trying to make a playoff push. But if, if, if they don't make the playoffs this year, I would just pull the plug right now and just trade as, and get as much as you can for the players that you have on your team. You mentioned Malcolm Brogdon's futures in question. I think he probably leaves if the season goes bad. Miles Turner's been on the trading block a couple times. I think he leaves if the season goes bad. I think he focused on maybe building the team around Karras and also keeping DeMontis Sabonis as well so that you have a strong player in your front court and a strong player in your back court. I think even though TJ McConnell re-signed, there's a chance that if the season goes bad, he may not be around for much longer. Um there's just way too many questions about this team in the Eastern Conference, and considering that the Eastern Conference got significantly better this year, this is a team that I don't see lasting very long in the playoff race, even under Rick Carlisle. I think at best this team can be a playing team, and at worst, this team barely misses the playing tournament. I mean, hey, I understand it, man. Indiana is a tricky squad, and 
I feel you on the the potential Orlando blow him up because I mean after a while you keep hitting your head on the ceiling and you got to ask yourself whether or not you can keep doing this while not getting you know legitimately high um draft picks I mean we'll see how my boy Chris Duarte does in this rotation hopefully he can be a guy who contributes day one and helps them um significantly but this team I mean between the health concerns with TJ and Karis the fact that DeMontis and uh and Miles are is this combination that you know is so tricky I'm with you man it's gonna be really interesting to see whether or not they can actually continue holding on to this squad as is because they have a it's similar it actually is really similar to how Orlando was before blowing things up they're a team that has a bunch of high-end starters and although DeMontis Sabonis has made, like, what, two all-star teams, I still don't view him as, like, a legitimate all-star player. And so they're a team that has a bunch of legit starters but no legit all-star player to uh, to help elevate all those guys together. And so you have to ask yourself the question of how many times you're going to hit your head on the uh, on the ceiling before – you realize, you know, the error of your ways. Now, can you blow up a team that you, you know, just assigned to Rick Carlisle, who is definitely not going to be one of those guys ready to sit around for a rebuild, or at least I would assume so? Mm, that definitely brings things into the question, but I agree with you, man. Indiana, trickiest team, trickiest team by far to me in the Eastern Conference. Brooks, let's talk about the Miami Heat, bro. Miami, they got they got all the guys you could think of, bro. They got Kyle Lowry. You know, they got they got Bam Adebayo. They they got the homie Jimmy Buckets. You know what I mean? They picked up the uh, the homie PJ Tucker in the offseason. They they got they got a little bit of a squad going for them. You know, they still got they still got that man Tyler Hero. We're not gonna talk about his off court duties. We just know we just know what time it is when you know what I'm saying? They got they got the names <laughs> on Miami. You know what I'm saying? They got my Miami got a squad with them, but I don't know how I feel about this depth chart, bro, when we really, really get into the crooks of things. I feel like this is a team that is getting a little gassed this offseason. A lot of people are already penciling them in as a top three seed in the Eastern Conference, top four seed at best, um, when considering the fact that, you know, some people still have a lot of faith in Philly, um, even in spite of the Ben Simmons situation. But, hey, man, look, I'm looking at this bench. We got Tyler Hero. We got a little bit of Markeith Morris, Dwayne Dedman, um, Max Struess. Like it, it, it's it's interesting, but it's it's not great, right? We Victor Oladipo is a guy who's gonna be out for some time. If he comes back, maybe that could be an interesting run as well. So let me let me ask you this. I'm, I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna actually put it simple. I'm gonna switch the question I sent you and ask you a better question. Overrated or underrated? Talking about the Miami Heat, bro. Top four seed. Do you believe that that is overrated or underrated? I feel like I feel like Miami. The names are drawing everybody to believe that this team is legitimately a top four seed in the Eastern Conference. When I believe that they're in a similar age range as the Lakers, who everybody clowned for being old. They're a team that's going to be solid on defense, but I don't know where these buckets coming from for the most part. And their depth sucks. So I'm not really sure how in the regular season that benefits them. So I think they're pretty overrated. I'm not really feeling them. I think that their starting five is interesting, though. And I'm starting to kind of come around to the camp of maybe we're gassing Miami. But, but how do you feel, bro? I think their top five is very 
Like, they're going to be super solid both ways. And I think they're just going to be like that old man group that you see at the YMCA just being able to get buckets when it matters the most. But, nah, I don't see them as a top four team. Because my top four was Milwaukee, Brooklyn, the Celtics, and Atlanta. That's who I see as my top four. So I would say bottom out. Best case scenario, I think is sixth. And best, I think is fifth. I don't think they're a top four team in this league right now, especially if Victor Oladipo uh, is still going to be hurt and it's still going to be like a lingering effect for him. I mean, he's been injured off on for like the last three seasons. And that that uh, all-star year feels like more more and more of like an outlier than anything else. And I hope, I hope I'm wrong about that because I like the guy and I hope he becomes a better player and I hope he becomes a better health. Like I hope he gets better health and all that. But yeah, I'm feeling like those all-star seasons that he had were kind of like an, an outlier. Um, yeah, top five at best, top six at worst. They are a little bit overrated. And the fact that you already have Tyler Hero in the Southern line, people are like, Tyler Hero, Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry. I think, I don't know, bruh. It doesn't, it doesn't get me excited. It doesn't get me like up there, you know? And Tyler Hero still got a whole lot to prove. Like, can he prove that that bubble, that that bubble season was true or not? And I don't know if he can. And he's been saying, "Yeah, I'm gonna tr- I'm gonna prove that everybody is wrong." But I don't know, I don't know, man. You, you got you got a whole lot to do. Yeah, man. I mean, no, I feel you. I mean, I mean, it's really that simple to me. I mean, Tyler Hero and Victor Oladipo are the X factors for me, and it's like not even close because when you look down his depth chart, it's not a lot of guys who are like gonna turn the table for this team outside of that starting lineup. I mean, let's not sleep on Duncan Robinson who did get paid. Um, let's hope that he doesn't have a Davis Bertans moment where he gets the bag and decides he can't shoot the tray ball anymore. Um, because if that hurts them, then it's even worse. This is a three. This is a team that's going to struggle as a three point shooting squad because again, outside of Duncan and probably Kyle, where is it going to come from? PJ Tucker was not a great three point shooter last year, and anything he got was standing still in the corner. So this is not a guy who's like creating three point opportunities. He's the most elite corner, corner three point shooter in the league. For sure, but the, the biggest thing for me is going to be is going to be interesting how they create those opportunities, right? If he's going to be a statue in the three point line, uh, you don't you don't have an imposing force like Giannis Antetokounmpo that's drawing three four guys where he can stand out there and be uncontested in that same kind of manner. So I mean, I don't see where the three point shooting is really coming from outside of really Duncan and Kyle. Um, there's not a lot of shot creation on this team. It'll be interesting to see how well Kyle even plays. I thought he had a low-key underrated solid season last year, despite the fact that Toronto wasn't that good. But I don't know, man. I think people are guessing Miami. And although I was on the hype train a little bit when they first signed Kyle, I'm starting to kind of come around to this idea that Miami is not as solid as we want them to be in their starting lineup is going to be one that it's going to be a hell of a matchup when we talk about them against anybody on the defensive end. But in terms of where they're getting buckets, hey, man, unless we're going back to the 2000, the early 2010 era of, you know, 88 to 90 games, if, if they get in, if, they, if they're looking at any position where they have to get in a shootout with a team, I am expecting them to be on the losing end every single time because, unfortunately, I don't think they can keep up bucket for bucket. Ryan, let's talk about the defending champion Milwaukee Bucks, bro. Disrespected in the media, fam. Disrespected. Look at, listen to a lot of the different, you know, news outlets, a lot of the different NBA analysts. And 
even us on this podcast have kind of went out on a limb and said that we feel as though the Brooklyn Nets are not only the favorite to come out the East, but the favorites to win the chip. And Milwaukee's like, hey, bro, I know we beat y'all by the toe, but look, we're still coming off the chip. We've got our entire lineup pretty much intact from last season. We get Dante DiVincenzo back. You know, we bring in a guy like Grayson Allen, who's going to be able to produce and be another three knockdown three-point shooter for us, which is going to be important. Hey, man, what in the world is holding the Milwaukee Bucks back that's making people believe that they can't run it back, including us? I mean, hey, I'm not going to just, you know, dump it on anybody else. What do you believe is the thing, the missing link for them that's making it where we can't have faith that they can potentially run this thing back? I'll be honest, I don't think anything is necessarily holding them back. I just think that there's other factors that are making people overlook the Milwaukee Bucks. Let's keep in mind, this team came back largely the same from last year. I think their only real loss in the offseason was losing PJ was a losing PJ Tucker mm. um to the Miami Heat. I do think they'll they'll miss his aggressiveness on defense. I don't know if he's the same corner three knockdown shooter, shooter that he was in the past, but I do think that Milwaukee can win games without him. Um, I think the addition of Grayson Allen is interesting simply because he hasn't been the same player since Duke. I haven't seen a lot of what he did so well at Duke in the NBA. I do think the the three-point shooting has remained the same since Duke, but I just think his instigator-like personality in college is something that We've seen a little bit of in the NBA, but I think could be really interesting as a member of the Milwaukee Bucks as a instigator type defender that really gets on the nerves of a lot of players. That's why I want to see from him in Milwaukee, and hopefully he can show more of that in the NBA. But I'm not really sure what's holding this team back. Yeah, I mean, I feel you. And I think that, you know, the other thing about Grayson is the athleticism we saw in high school and at Duke hasn't popped off like extremely in the NBA yet either. He's had some splash plays here where he's going to get up on you. But for the most part, he's been a knockdown three-point shooter, and that's kind of been his calling card in the league. And nothing's wrong with that. Getting Shooting the tray pound is getting people paid, so there's nothing wrong with it. But I do understand, and I do kind of agree with you that there's another gear that he has to, that, he, that he could potentially hit. And it'll be interesting to see if, you know, as maybe a leader on that second unit from Milwaukee, if that's where they can bring it out. I mean, him and Dante DiVincenzo are both up for extensions or up for a contract at least. It's going to be interesting to see how both of those guys bounce back because, you know, for Grayson, you know, this is yet another team for him. And, you know, in terms of his uh, in terms of him bouncing around the league um, in his early stints of his career, for a guy like Dante DiVincenzo, he's coming off of injury and was not a factor in that playoff run. It'll be interesting to see how they reintegrate him in because he's going to be a big factor of how this team moves forward, especially talking about that guard spot. Brooks, I actually don't want to move off of Milwaukee too quickly because they're the defending champs, so I kind of want to give them their, their just due. And with that being the case, I want to also get your thoughts on them. Like, you know, Ryan didn't really have an answer, and understandably so. Like, maybe the league around them just got that much better because, I mean, a lot of teams, especially in the East, improved over this offseason. But I want to get your thought process. Do you have a similar view that maybe it's not that – Milwaukee, there's something wrong with them. It's just the teams around them got 
significantly better in the offseason as opposed to them, they kind of stayed the same? Or do you think that maybe there is something that's missing with Milwaukee that is giving us a little bit of cause to pause and wonder whether or not they can run things back when there's the Brooklyns of the world out there um, standing in their way? I mean, their main threat is weaker than it was last year in the Brooklyn Nets. So I don't understand why there is a uh, an underestimation of the Milwaukee Bucks. I mean, they are the de facto best team in the league right now being the, defend, the, the defending champs. Giannis Antetokounmpo showed everybody wrong that you don't need to be a shooter in order to be a champion or MVP. Like, the last time we saw him play, the dude put up 50 and was the most dominant guy on the floor. There's no reason why people should be discounting them. And I understand that the Lakers have all these Hall of Famers on their team now. But Jalen, you just you just alluded to it. They're old as hell. Are you gonna be are you truly afraid of Melo and Rajon Rondo and LeBron James and Ray, and 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 A D and all these guys? Or is it just like the fact that oh they're Hall of Famers? There's seven of them there. This is gonna be a dangerous team. Bro, if I had Maybe if they were all in their prime, I'd be I'd be a lot more scared if they were all in their prime or like early thirties than I am right now. Like I still believe that Giannis is the best is the best guy in the league. I think Drew Holiday and and, and Chris Middleton have proven themselves as like those out there as his uh his cohorts or his, his co stars I should say. So no, I I think it's just like plain old disrespect. I think they I think they want to piss off Giannis. I think they don't. I think the league is doing this on purpose. Because this is no reason why they're discounting him in the in this Bucks team. Because they're great. They proved everybody wrong. I don't understand. I don't get it. Hey man, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I think we're all kind of battling with the idea that the Brooklyn Nets just have so much firepower and offensively they. I mean, you could argue their depth is improved. Their depth was the biggest reason why they lost that series with Milwaukee was because once James Harden got hobbled, once we, you know, once Kyrie Irving got ruled out, they really didn't have anybody outside of Kevin Durant to really create for them. And it took, you know, a Herculean effort by KD to really even keep them in that series um, uh, or, you know, to, to push the distance in that series, I should say. So, I mean, I think it's just the fact that the circumstances of how Milwaukee won, right, the big toe, uh, the fact that they, you know, ran into, you know, a situation with the Atlanta Hawks being the team in the conference finals as opposed to um, maybe a, a team that we had higher expectations for last year. Um, I think their road to the finals is what makes makes people so skeptical about whether or not they're the real deal, including myself. And it'll be interesting to see how they play off of that. I think that this year will be um, a real relief for those guys. I think especially Giannis Antetokounmpo, you know, when you're in that best player in the world conversation, it's always that idea of, you know, if you're walking around without a ring, there's a heavy amount of, con- you know, controversy around whether or not you're a winning player or just a stat sheet stuffer, right? A guy who's won back-to-back MVPs, most improved player of the year, de- defensive player of the year, and ends up in a situation where, like, oh, you can't, but you can't win a championship? Like, you know, I think now that monkey off his back will propel them into a different area. So I, I gotta agree with you. I think that to make a long story short, I think that Milwaukee is in a situation where a lot of people, including, you know, some of us, 
are sleeping on them. And it'll be interesting to see if they take that and, you know, that fuels their fire the way, like you said, maybe they're getting set up to piss Giannis off so he can go for another scary MVP run and go, you know, bananas. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Ryan, we got to talk about your squad, the U- the New York Knicks, bro. Anybody who has not listened to this podcast does not know the kind of fandom that the New York Knicks get from this man, Ryan. And last year, last year, Ryan got all of his gas and then some. They finished as a top four seed in the Eastern Conference. And although they fell to the Atlanta Hawks in the first round, something that made my heart feel oh so good, this was a team that at the same time, Looked pretty solid last year as a defensive team. This is a team that shot really well from the three ball. Really shot the three ball well as, um, between Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett, who both had like career years from behind the arc. Uh, they lost out on Reggie Bullock, who was a big time three point shooter for them as well. But they picked up Kemba in the offseason, Evan Fournier in the offseason. They were able to keep Derrick Rose, which I think was low key sneaky solid for them. Emmanuel quickly had a breakout year in his rookie season, which most of us probably didn't expect considering he was in the bottom half of the first round. And we know how Tom Thibodeau feels about rookies. So kind of wasn't expecting that either. This is a team that addressed their biggest need based off that playoff series, which is offensive shot creation, right? You get two guys in Evan Fournier and um, Kemba Walker picked up their best player in that series by far was Derrick Rose and you keep him. So now they have, a legit, you know, they have two units of shot creation at the guard position that are pretty solid. But Ryan, people just, people just not feel the Knicks right now. I mean, I keep listening to people and I mean, it's a lot of people that's got them in that seven, eight spot. Now I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering how they could improve their biggest hole and still be viewed as, you know, as lowly as they are now a lot of people tend to lean on there's a lot of like uh three-point shooting luck that was in their favor based on the statistics there was also a lot of three-point shooting luck in their favor in terms of some of their guys like i said uh julius randall rj barry who had like career years from beyond the arc ryan do you believe that the Knicks have the talent to surprise the league again, or do you feel like last season was a blink? I know that you're the, the bona fide New York Knicks fan on the pod, but I feel like this is like an actual legit question, considering that their roster is better. I mean, their roster is definitely better than last year. I love answering this question. The answer is yes. <laughs> Come on. Like, look, I don't understand why people are sleeping on the New York Knicks. I don't. This is a team that came out of nowhere essentially last year and made the playoffs as the fourth best team in the Eastern Conference. They were better record-wise than teams like the Atlanta Hawks, the Boston Celtics, the Indiana Pacers, who people are raving about too. Like, this is a team that has continued to surprise people. And I think it starts at the coaching position. I think you get a guy like Tom Thibodeau, defensive-minded coach, and has a lot of experience with coaching playoff caliber teams, I think it just starts from the top and works its way down. I think players like Julius Randle, who stepped up big time, career highs in points, rebounds, and assists. Other players like R.J. Barrett, shooting the ball well from the field, shooting ball, shooting the ball well from three, shooting the ball well from the line. 
you get players like Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier to help this team on the offensive side of the ball in terms of shot creating and also three-point shooting. Evan Fournier shot 46% from the field with Boston last year as well, and then you pretty much retain the core of your talent from that playoff from that uh, playoff team last year. You mentioned Derrick Rose. You also did mention Alec Burks, who shot the ball well from three last year. Mm-hmm. Emmanuel Quickly, who was all-rookie second team, and he came out of nowhere to surprise us all. Uh, just shout-out to him because he's a Maryland guy. Went to John Carroll. Uh, great player at Kentucky as well. Like this, this is a guy that I think can make a lot of noise coming off the bench being paired up alongside Derrick Rose. I think other players that could really stand out for this team, Obi Toppin, Mitchell Robinson, two athletic guys at the front court um, for the Knicks that can really do damage um, with that second unit along with Manuel Quickly and Derrick Rose. I definitely think people are sleeping on this team. I feel you, bro. We're going to go a little bit more in-depth on slept-on teams on a different podcast. I definitely think that the New York Knicks are going to make that list. Just out of the mere fact that I feel like a lot of people feel like New York, it's kind of hard to feel good about New York nowadays because they've been such like, a, as Stephen A. Smith says, a moribund franchise for a good handful of years. But I think that they've legitimately been making quiet moves that have got them on the uptick where they're kind of building something. And sneaky thing I'm going to slide in here. With the kind of contracts that they've signed this offseason, as well as some of the things that they've done across the roster, I also think we should not sleep on them as a potential Dame Lillard trade partner. I'm not saying that we should book that in, but I think that considering this Dame Lillard situation, along with the kind of, like, the kind of, you know, assets they have on the roster currently in terms of expiring contracts, different kind of favorable, like team favorable contracts and things like that, I wouldn't sleep on the idea of them being at least in play for the Dame Lillard trade if that were something that comes up this season. Brooks, we're going to move over to Orlando. And as, as a rebuilding team, similar to how we talked about like Detroit earlier, it's always kind of hard to kind of not have questions about a team that's kind of forging their path. So one question that I want to ask you, and I brought their depth chart chart up. You can bring their depth chart up as well if you'd like to. I'm going to name a couple of guys to help you out. But let's talk about young cores for a sec. This team has guys like Cole Anthony, Mo Bamba. They picked up Wendell Carter, um, RJ Hampton, Jonathan Isaac, who's going to miss some time, but is a pretty solid uh, forward for them, who was in the defensive player of the year race last year. Chuma Akeke, who's really solid for them as well. Jalen Suggs, Frost Wagner, who they picked up. Moritz Wagner, shout out, uh, shout out the homie who had a little bit of a stint in Washington for us as well. Admiral Schofield is another one of those guys that had a little stint in Washington. Michael Carter Williams, Ignis Brezdikas, like they, they're, they're a young team with a deep squad. My question to you, out of all the guys that I named, like I said, if, if it helps, you can definitely bring up the roster yourself as well. Um, somewhere on YouTube, we might even just throw the roster up on the screen. Um, if you had to pick five guys from this group that are going to be your core moving forward, who are the five guys that you're leaning with in terms of leading the Orlando Magic into the next 
era of, you know, Orlando basketball. Because this is their first rebuild in a while, and they've got a lot of young talent that they're going to have to make decisions on. Who are the five guys that you're rolling with moving forward out of this group? If you Gun to your head, these guys are the untouchables. Kel, Jalen Suggs, Jonathan Isaacs, four and five. And it doesn't have to be by position. It just has to be five guys that you know you that these are the untouchables. They're not going in trade talks. These are guys that are building our future up. Yeah, I'm. I'm, Yeah, Kel, Jonathan Suggs, Jonathan Isaacs, um. Michael Carter, Michael Carter, I I will, I will put, I'll keep in there because he can play one through three. Fifth, I'm, I'm not sure, man. The fifth guy. I mean, who else is in there? Who else? Who else is in really? I mean, R.J. Hampton, Terrence uh, Ross, Chuma, Kekis. Terrence. I mean, Terrence I don't know. Ross, if, yeah. I don't know if Terrence Ross is long term. You, he could be yeah, though. I it seems say like that, he's though. having a hard. It seems like he's having a fun time sticking around in Orlando. I just wonder if he's really a guy. I mean, you know. Terrence is 30. It's not, I mean, he's not old by any means on this roster at all. I mean, they have Robin Lopez on this roster, too. We know he's not sticking around long term. But I just feel like Terrence Ross, I don't know if he's like a long term guy. But, you know, Gary Harris, RJ Hampton, Chumo Okeke, Admiral Schofield, um, obviously Mo Ross Wagner, they picked up. Yeah, Mo. Yeah. Like, I mean, so I'll go, so I'll go Kel, Jen Suggs, Jonathan Isaacs. Uh, Mo Bamba, and then yeah, Michael Carter Williams. I'll go with those those five guys. Ryan, I want to get I want to get your same thoughts, bro. We're all gonna do this little exercise because I think this is kind of interesting. If you had to pick five guys that you're rolling to the bank with in terms of building your core around for this Orlando team, who's the five guys you rocking with? So I like Markel Fultz, I like Jonathan Isaac, and I like Jalen Suggs. I'm actually gonna go with Terrence Ross as my fourth guy because I want a veteran presence on this team and he's somebody that's very reliable coming off the bench and I think at at 30 years old definitely can provide a lot of experience to a young team. I would have to say my other selection this is going to be very tough but I'm going to have to go Wendell Carter Jr. I I think he's somebody with I think he has so much more to prove with the Orlando Magic that he didn't showcase in Chicago I think that they can really unlock who he truly is as a player. So I think that those five are my untouchables for the Orlando Magic. No, I feel you. And and honestly, if if I'm going with mine, I agree with you guys at the top end in terms of a guy like Jalen Suggs and Jonathan Isaac. Um, Even Kel, I have a little bit of questions about Markel Fultz, um, which makes me feel a little bit apprehensive about Kel. So I'm actually going to back off in terms of that one. I'm, I don't feel great making that, making that kind of pull, but he just concerns me a lot. And unlike Jonathan Isaac, who I've seen the peak of when healthy, Markel Fultz, I still don't actually know what peak healthy Markel Fultz looks like. So I have a hard time saying that that's somebody that I want to build my future around. So Jalen Suggs and Jonathan Isaac for sure. I got RJ Hampton in there as an upside guy for them who I think is going to be huge. Ryan, I'm rocking with you, bro. It's Wendell Carter over Mo Bamba, bro. I mean, I think that I think that the Magic made a mistake picking Mo Bamba over Wendell Carter. My Chicago Bulls ended up getting Wendell. Um, not too not too many picks after. I think it might have even been a pick after. 
um in that draft, a pick or two after in that draft. I think Wendell Carter Jr. in this situation will be a lot more beneficial for him because you know, he's been he was dealing with a lot of injuries in Chicago and I think if he can be healthy on this team where he has a really legit carved out role, I think Wendell Carter could be legit. So that's four. And then my fifth man, I'm gonna go with Chumo Keke. He was solid coming out of Auburn. And if he wasn't injured, I think he would have been taken way higher in the draft than where he was. This was a guy who went really low and it kind of sucks because he was a guy who really stood out for them for for that Auburn Tigers team and that was you know the national championship run team or at least I think it was like final four that they uh that he was a big contributor on as well before going down so those are the guys that I'm going to rock with when we talk about Orlando but it's such an interesting exercise because they have so many young guys like we didn't even mention Franz they picked up Franz in the lottery this year and because they've got some interesting guys already on the roster, we're not even sure if, you know, Franz is a guy who can be a building piece or if he's just going to be a guy that's a good filler at the three spot. So I think Orlando is just an interesting squad when talking about that grouping. But, uh, fellas, we're coming down to the final three, and we might be talking about the most interesting team in the East if you're talking about ESPN news headlines, bro, and that's the Philadelphia 76ers. It's about that time that we got to this team, right? It only seemed like it was taking forever, but now here we are. We're not going to talk about Ben Simmons too much because that situation has been discussed ad nauseum. You can tune into literally any podcast. I'm not going to give you a suggestion. Check, check out HMO. They, th- those guys, those, those guys do solid work, I heard. Um, but I mean, <laughs> you know, the streets have talked about Ben Simmons for more than I can stand at this point. I don't have the energy to discuss it. You've heard way too many angles. There's nothing else really to talk about until a trade is made, right? Or Ben shows back up on the court because his pockets hurt. One of those decisions have to be made before we can really deep dive any further into this Ben Simmons situation beyond anything that's already been said. So here's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go this route. And Brooks, I'm going to start with you, bro. Currently constructed. Ben Simmons isn't traded. We don't see what assets are extended for or exchanged for a guy like Ben. We look at the roster just as made with, you know, Tyrese Maxey, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid, Seth Curry, um, so on and so forth, right? Is it still a top four team in the Eastern Conference? I know that you had a top four that was set that didn't have the Philadelphia 76ers in it. But I'm saying... Do with Joel Embiid at the helm, a team that basically is going to be playing through Joel Embiid as opposed to, if you listen to Joel Embiid, they were making their roster around Ben Simmons. This is a team that's placed to, to cater Joel Embiid, right? He's coming off of what could have been an MVP season last year. He came up as basically a runner-up behind Nikola Jokic, and it really had more to almost more to do with games played than it did performance on the floor. Do you think that Joel Embiid has the capability by himself as the solo all-star in this situation to lead what was just last year the number one overall seed in the Eastern Conference to at least still be a top four seed on his own this year? I think it's going to be a whole lot harder. I know that. I I, I don't think they're a top four team this year. I will say that, Um, especially if Ben Simmons doesn't play and especially if he comes in disgruntled. Oh, I don't want to be here. Oh, you guys don't believe in me, blah, 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 blah. We don't have to talk about that because, again, it's already been discussed by everybody else, including HMO. Um, 
But be that as it may, man, Ben Simmons is that team's engine, and he makes that team so much better. And the fact that the 76ers played so well, even without Joel Embiid in certain spots, says a whole lot about how good Ben Simmons is as well. But I do have faith that Joel Embiid could lead this team to a top-five finish, at least. I feel like it'd be Chicago and Philly fighting for that fifth and sixth seed all, all season. Um, he's an MVP candidate to me. Uh, he, he showed that he can be an MVP candidate last year. So it's really going to be up to him and his health and how much better of a leader he can be. I do agree with what he said, that this team was more catered towards Ben Simmons' talent than Joel Embiid's mm-hmm. talent. When you look at the roster construction, look, they had, they had Seth Curry at one point. They had J.J. Redick at one point. Markel Fultz was supposed to be like the next guy for up for them. We all know how that went. And again, it's like he even had a point about, oh, I, I like to shoot threes. I like to be a basketball player. I like to improve people around me. Can I say the same thing about Ben Simmons? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not gonna go deeper and much more deeper into that. I'm sorry. But yeah, I, I have faith in Joel and being my faith and faith in the Sydney Sixers. Ryan, I, I want to get your thoughts on this as well, just because you know we haven't talked about this a lot on the HTP because we try to let the experts discuss this on a day to day basis. They're the ones who cover this closely and. They're the ones getting all the news for, and nobody really needs our help breaking that news, right? So we've kind of left this Ben Simmons situation alone for the most part. But what do you feel like? Are, do, 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 what do you feel like is the upside of this team if there's there, there's no Ben Simmons trade and this team goes into the the season as currently constructed? Like, do you think that this team can still finish as like a potential top four, top five seed in the league, or do you feel like? You feel like that's that's you know reaching for straws. Potentially, they could finish as a top five team, but I have to agree with Brooks. I have to agree with Brooks because I don't think that this team currently is a is a top five team. I think regardless of what happens to the Sixers, I think they'll still have a great season. But I think they're more or less going to be affected by the rest of the Eastern Conference because remember, I think the the rest of the Eastern Conference got significantly better. And I could name five teams right now who I think are better than, this, than the Philadelphia 76ers. You have the Brooklyn Nets, the Milwaukee Bucks. You have the Atlanta Hawks. You have the Miami Heat. You even have the New York Knicks. I think that those five teams right now are better than the Philadelphia 76ers currently. And I think with all the issues, regardless of what happened, what's happening with Ben Simmons, this is a team that is going to have to continue to fight this season to be a top five seed in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I think that Philly is tricky, um, but, like, I just think that Joel Embiid is a really top-end talent, and we've seen both of these guys, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, thrive really well when one of the other wasn't on the court, and I feel like this will be a perfect opportunity. I mean, Joel Embiid seems pretty pissed about this whole situation, so I think a big thing about this season, too, we'll just see, will be, if, you know, a, a Joel Embiid who wants to shut down the naysayers by being able to play at a high level without Ben, you know, this team as a group proved that Ben can sit out and they can still thrive without them. I do think that that's a backdrop storyline to keep an eye out on because I do think this is a team that's going to be playing with a chip on his shoulder because a lot of people feel as though they're not a championship contender if Ben Simmons is not on this group and not playing, and there's no trade made. As as currently constructed, they're pretty much slighted as a group. So it's going to be really interesting to see 
what happens with them moving forward because, you know, this trade could really impact how we view them as a group. But overall, I still think that they have significant upside. I agree with you guys, though. Top four is kind of a uh, kind of a stretch. Top five, that fifth spot, that fifth spot is a dogfight, though. But like I said earlier in the pod, once you hit three in this Eastern Conference, I think there's a dogfight all the way across the board. So who knows? Joel Embiid in the, the group of teams beyond the top two is probably the best-case scenario MVP candidate of all the teams remaining after Brooklyn and Milwaukee. So who knows? Um, guys, we're going to finish up with our last two teams. I'm going to do this in a really interesting way where my man's Brooks ends up talking these wizards. So we're going to start with the Rock. We're going to start with the Toronto Raptors for Ryan. And, um, hey man, we're not going to speak on the behalf of the homie TV on basketball. Check out his pod. Check out, um, check him out on Instagram and TikTok as well. We plan on having him on to talk a little bit more in depth about Toronto at a later date. But, Ryan, Scotty Barnes, man. We, we saw this on draft night. Anybody who didn't tune into, uh, Brooks, uh, Brooks and Joe's, uh, live on HMO, they actually did something super dope, which was use me and Ryan's, uh, mock drafts to follow the draft live when they were doing that on YouTube. And our big boards, our mock drafts, along with a lot of other mock drafts had Scotty Barnes, uh, being skipped over um at this specific pick being number four for Toronto in favor of Jalen Suggs and instead they they made the odd man out pick by picking up Scotty and it was a really controversial selection the day of and in the in the days after really. Um what are your thoughts, Ryan, on Scotty Barnes as a player and what are your expectations for him in year one? He's definitely gonna get a lot of burn early with the fact that Pascal Siakam's out right now due to injury. So what what are your expectations for Scotty in year one as a member of Toronto? So I definitely think he has a lot of upside. I think the athleticism is there, but he has to be able to shoot. And I think that's the one thing that you and I criticized him coming out of Florida State. Um, for is that he really hasn't been able to shoot the ball as effectively as we thought he would. He was a really effective shooter in high school, and also the athleticism was there in high school and the athleticism was there in college. But I think that he has to be able to be a great shooter. He was not that great of a three-point shooter at Florida State. So hopefully things can change at uh, Toronto, and I think that he has a chance to be the starting power forward this year with Pascal Siakam out. But I think that this was a very controversial pick regardless because your biggest need wasn't that power forward. It was that point guard. And I have a very scary feeling about this because there's a chance that this may backfire and Jalen Suggs may have the better career. But I could be wrong. So I'm very interested to see what his fit will be like in Toronto and definitely want to get TV's thoughts on this as well because he's a huge Toronto Raptors fan. But I'm very interested to see what he can provide to the Toronto Raptors in the place of Pascal Siakam right now. I'm yeah, sure. I mean, we, we saw – go ahead, Brooks. Actually, I want to hear your thoughts too. Go ahead. I was I, I have to disagree with Ryan on his take of, on Jalen Suggs versus Scotty Barnes because I feel like the way the Magic are set up with Cole Anthony and Marco Fultz and Michael Carter-Williams – I think it's going to be harder for Jalen Suggs to really get some burn on there just because he's not a guy who has an in-between game like Cole Anthony does. He plays great defense and he's a solid point guard, but like, what is he, what does he do better than Cole Anthony and Markel Fultz or Michael, Car- or Michael Carter Williams right now? 
You know, I think that's that's my main concern. I feel like Toronto was his perfect spot, and for whatever reason, Scotty Barnes got picked over him. And I like Scotty Barnes' game a lot, and I love the swag and the confidence that he plays with. But I can't say that if it was me or if it was any of us that we would have picked him over Jalen Suggs. I agree with your last point, Brooks. I would say that J- Jalen he he has more upside than Cole because he has the same he has the same if not similar like similar if not better bounce than Cole. But he's arguably a better shooter than Cole. He's definitely a better table setter than Cole in terms of being a facilitator. And it's not even a question that he's better than him on defense. Um, he has more upside than RJ Hampton for similar reasons. And when you talk about Michael Carter Williams, I think that he's a solid all around player, but Jalen Suggs between the youth and his athleticism has an upside gear that Michael Carter Williams doesn't have. So, like, That's my fair. only argument would be that there's a little bit of stuff that Jalen Suggs has here and there that makes him a better overall prospect moving forward than any of those guys. But I, what I do agree with you on is that last point you made about the fact that because he's a table setter, right, he thrived in a group um, on Gonzaga where he had a bunch of different guys that had really, really solid skill sets around him, and all he had to do was make sure everybody ate. He, you know, he would go off. He was a competitive defensive player as, uh, as well. And he was a competitive overall guard, um, in the WCC and on top of that in the NCAA. But I think that Toronto would have fit so much better because of the fact that you have, you know, not right now, but you have Pascal, you have OG, you have Fred Van Vliet, Freddie Gillespie, um, Chris Boucher. Like you have guys around you that the biggest thing for them is just need to be able to get them in the rock. And, and you need to be able to get them in their spots. And I think that that's something that he's able to do in a really good way that I hope Orlando will take advantage of with guys like Wendell, with guys like, um, like Franz, who they picked up, um, Jonathan Isaac, when he gets healthy. Like, I hope that those guys will be able to benefit from the kind of upside as a facilitator that Jalen has. Cause if they, if they can't, you're not getting the best version of what Jalen Suggs brings your team. And unfortunately, Toronto would have been the team that you would have seen that on. And now we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be able to, you know, view that. So it's going to be interesting to see how that all lines up. Let's talk about this last team, Brooks. Like I said, it's only right, bro. Talking about the DMV squad that is the Washington Wizards, bro. Shout out to the Wizards. It's going to be a team we're going to have our eyes on a lot this season. And they made some solid moves to improve their depth, right? We pick up. Um, Spencer Dinwiddie, we get um, Kyle Kuzma, we get uh, Aaron Holiday. Go down the list, bro. I mean, of guys that we've been able to pick up in the the last year overall, picking up Daniel Gafford, which hurts my heart as a Bulls fan, but as a Wizards fan, I can't be too mad about we, the fact that, that was a wonderful trade. Wonderful, was a wonderful trade, trade on their end in terms of making that exchange for them in particular. When you look at the Wizards, right, my biggest thing for them is that they are in a situation where alongside Bradley Beal, they have too many guys, like just guys, right? I think Spencer Dinwiddie is pretty solid um, overall. They have a lot of guys where when you say describe this player, you say he's a, he's a solid guy. He's a solid starter. He's a solid rotational player. Like I feel like that's kind of like the the best adjective we have to like relate to any of these players in terms of like what they can provide to our team. So my question to you is there anybody on this team that realistically has an upside that goes beyond solid? So like 
a most improved player candidate, a six man of the year candidate, a bounce back player candidate. I guess you could maybe put like Spencer Dinwiddie in that arg in that argument for like, you know, bounce back comeback player of the year. But like, is there anybody on this group that like falls into like one of those categories? Somebody that has a lot more upside than being just a guy for us. I think it's Aaron Holiday and, and Spencer Dinwiddie. I mean, listen, GM survey says we had votes of, that we had the most impressive, impressive, uh, offseason. We had the best low-key acquisition with Spencer Dinwiddie. And I tend to agree. I think Spencer Dinwiddie is going to be, like, if there was a bounce back, year, bounce back player of the year candidate, it would be him. I think he's going to be a 20, 20 and like seven guy. I don't think he's, I think he's going to be really good for this team. I think Aaron Holiday is going to be able to put up six man of the year numbers, but I can't say that he beat out whoever will be at, like at the top of the list. So maybe like a Derrick Rose or, you know, a Lou Williams once again, you know, he's always in the, in the running for that award. So I'm a big fan of what we have this year. I think this is the most talent that we have had in a while as terms of just like health guys that can do everything that you need for a basketball player to do. And again, this is going to be a huge season for Brad Bill because once again, the free Brad Bill stuff is going on. They say the Lakers, they say an LA team, but the, my boy is unvaccinated. So <laughs> I, I, I think we can throw that one out the window. So we'll see what happens, man. I, I like this team right now. I say top seven finish for this team. I think they're in the play in again, but I think they're able to get that one win in quicker than they did last season. So I'm excited for this team, man. Again, a lot of talent on this team. A lot of, like you said, solid players on here. But you need solid players in order to to win in in this league. So I think that's pretty much satisfied. Yeah, man. I think depth wise for us during the regular season, we are solid. Like, I mean, when we talk about making it through the regular season, I mean, sleep. I mean, people sleep on the fact that you know KCP was picked up in his trade. Denny Avdia, I think, is going to be better because he was turned into a spot up three point shooter with Russell Westbrook. I think on this team, we can actually maximize the fact that he's got a little bit of ball handling skill. Kyle Kuzma, I think Loki has a chip on his shoulder. He's been talking some. He's been talking some mess during his offseason, talking about the fact that in this situation, you know, being on a non-LeBron James team, that he might be a legit contributor, you know, in a in a way, a bigger way than he has in the past. Daniel Gafford, I can't wait to see a full season of him um, on the Wizards. And I agree with you. Um, If you remember, there was the year where we got to see Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell both compete for six men of the year while also being pick and roll partners, hilariously enough. And Aaron Holiday and Montrez Harrell are basically in that similar situation. Now, I do believe that Lou Williams at that time is a better player than what Aaron Holiday is right now, but Aaron Holiday still has upside to him where I think in a, in a situation like this, in a backcourt next to KCP who can cover defensively and have stuff like that help-wise around him, Davis Bertans off the bench, Denny Avdia off the bench with him. I think I agree with you. I think Aaron Holiday and Montrezl Harrell are the two guys who could be in that six-man-of-the-year uh, candidate role. And I think for most improved player, I, I would have to put like Kyle Kuzma or Aaron Holiday in that area too as two guys who could legit, you know, pop out the face and do something a little bit bigger or a little bit better than expected um than expected this year. So um yeah. 
But um, guys, that is all 15 teams in the Eastern Conference. It took us a grip to get there, but it was a lot of really solid conversations about all the Eastern Conference teams. We plan on doing the same thing next week um, with all the Western Conference teams. Not sure who the guest is yet, but trust and believe we got somebody in the waiting in the works for that to talk about them before the NBA season um, is coming. Guys, this is season three. We got a lot coming uh soon, and uh, we haven't even announced the most of it yet. So just know that YouTube, uh us being on YouTube now, is just the start of what season three is going to be all about. But uh Ryan, solid work today, my boy. Let's get up out of here. Help us get up. We want to thank our guest today, Brooks Warren, for coming on and talking about the Eastern Conference with us and transitioning to our question of the day for our fans. Which Eastern Conference team impresses you the most? This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We will see you guys next episode. Peace.